Hello, and welcome to Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, the podcast. Written by Eliezer Yudkowsky, read by Ineash Brodsky, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Chapter 37. Interlude. Crossing the Boundary. It was almost midnight. Staying up late was simple enough for Harry. He just hadn't used the time-turner. Harry followed a tradition of timing his sleep cycle to make sure he was awake for when Christmas Eve turned into Christmas Day. Because while he'd never been young enough to believe in Santa Claus, he'd once been young enough to doubt. It would have been nice if there had been a mysterious figure who entered your house in the night and brought you presents. A chill went down Harry's spine then. An intimation of something dreadful approaching. A creeping terror. A sense of doom. Harry sat bolt upright in bed. He looked at the window. Professor Quirrell! Harry shrieked very quietly. Professor Quirrell made a slight lifting gesture, and Harry's window seemed to fold into its frame. At once, a cold gust of winter blew into the room through the gap, along with a scant few flakes of snow from a sky spotted with gray night clouds amid the black and stars. Fear not, Mr. Potter, said the defense professor in a normal voice. I have charmed your parents asleep. They shall not wake until I have departed. No one's supposed to know where I am, said Harry, still keeping the shriek quiet. Even owls are supposed to deliver my mail to Hogwarts, not here. Harry had agreed to that willingly. It would be silly if a Death Eater could win the whole war at any time just by owling him a magically triggered hand grenade. Professor Quirrell was grinning from where he stood in the backyard beyond the window. Oh, I shouldn't worry, Mr. Potter. You are well protected against locating charms, and no blood purist is likely to think of consulting a phone book. His grin grew wider. And it did take considerable effort to cross the wards that the headmaster put around this house. Though, of course, anyone who knew your address could simply wait outside and attack you the next time you left. Harry stared at Professor Quirrell for a while. What are you doing here? Harry said finally. The smile left Professor Quirrell's face. I've come to apologize, Mr. Potter. I should not have spoken to you so harshly as I... Don't, Harry said. He looked down at the blanket he was clutching around his pajamas. Just don't. Have I offended you that much? Said Professor Quirrell's quiet voice. No, Harry said. But you will if you apologize. I see said Professor Quirrell, and in an instant his voice grew stern. Then if I am to treat you as an equal, Mr. Potter, I should say that you have gravely violated the etiquette that holds between friendly Slytherins. If you are not currently playing the game against someone, you must not meddle in their plans like that, not without asking them before. For you do not know what their true design may be, nor what stakes they may lose. It would mark you as their enemy, Mr. Potter. I'm sorry. Harry said, in just the same quiet tone that Professor Quirrell had used. Apology accepted, said Professor Quirrell. But you and I really must speak further on politics at some point. Professor Quirrell sighed. I know you dislike condescension, Mr. Potter. That was a bit of an understatement. But it would be even more condescending if I were not to state it clearly. You are missing some life experience, Mr. Potter. And does everyone who has sufficient life experience agree with you then? said Harry calmly. What good is life experience to someone who plays Quidditch? said Professor Quirrell, and shrugged. 
I think you will change your mind in time, after every trust you place has failed you, and you have become cynical. The defense professor said it as though it were the most ordinary statement in the world, framed against the black and the stars and the cloud-spotted sky, as one or two tiny snowflakes blew past him in the biting winter air. That reminds me, said Harry. Merry Christmas. I suppose. After all, if it is not an apology, then it must be a Christmas gift. The very first one I have ever given, in fact. Harry hadn't even started yet on learning Latin so he could read the experimental diary of Roger Bacon, and he hardly dared open his mouth to ask. Put on your winter coat, or take a warming potion if you have one, and meet me outside, under the stars. I shall see if I can maintain it a little longer this time. It took Harry a moment to process the words, and then he was dashing for the coat closet. Professor Quirrell kept the spell of starlight going for more than an hour, though the defense professor's face grew strained and he had to sit down after a while. Harry protested only once and was shushed. They crossed the boundary from Christmas Eve to Christmas Day within that timeless void where earthly rotations meant nothing. The one, true, everlasting, silent night. And just as promised, Harry's parents slept soundly through it all, until Harry was safely back in his room and the defense professor had gone. End Chapter 37 Chapter 38 The Cardinal Sin Bright the sun, bright the air, bright the students and bright their parents. Clean the paved ground of Platform 9.75, the winter sun hanging low in the sky at 9.45 a.m. in the morning on January 5th, 1992. Some of the younger students wore scarves and mittens, but most simply wore their robes. They were wizards, after all. After Harry had moved away from the landing platform, he took off his scarf and coat, opened a compartment of his trunk, and stowed away his winter things. For a long moment, he stood there, letting the January air bite at him, just to see what it was like. Harry took out his wizard's robes, shrugged them on. And finally, Harry drew his wand, and he couldn't help thinking of the parents he'd only just kissed goodbye, of the world whose problems he was leaving behind. With a strange feeling of guilt for the unavoidable, Harry said, Thermos! The warmth flowed through him. And the boy who lived was back. Harry yawned and stretched, feeling more lethargic than anything else at the conclusion of his vacation. He didn't feel like reading his textbooks, or even any serious science fiction. This morning, what he needed was something completely frivolous to occupy his attention. Well, that wouldn't be hard to come by if he was willing to part with four knuts. Besides, if the Daily Prophet was corrupt and the Quibbler was the only competing newspaper, there might be some suppressed real news in there. Harry trudged back over to the same newsstand from last time, wondering if the Quibbler could top the headline he'd seen before. The vendor started to smile as Harry approached, and then the man's face suddenly changed as he caught sight of the scar. Harry Potter, gasped the vendor. No, Mr. Durian, said Harry, eyes dipping briefly to the man's name tag. Just an amazing imitation. And then Harry's voice stopped in his throat as he caught sight of the top fold of the Quibbler. Quibbler headlines! Sloth Seer spills secrets! Dark Lord to return! For just an instant, Harry tried to clamp down on his face, before realizing that not being shocked could be just as revealing, in a sense. Excuse me! 
Harry said. His voice sounded a little alarmed, and he didn't even know whether that was too revealing or just what his normal reaction would be if he didn't know anything. He'd spent too much time around Slytherins. He was forgetting how to keep secrets from ordinary people. Four knuts hit the counter. One copy of the Quibbler, please. Oh, no worries, Mr. Potter, said the vendor hastily, waving his hands. It's... never mind, just... The newspaper flew through the air and hit Harry's fingers, and he unfolded it. Slosh Sears spills secrets, Dark Lord to return, wed Draco Malfoy! It's free, said the vendor. For you, I, I mean. No, I was going to buy one anyway. The vendor took the coins, and Harry read on. Gosh, Harry said half a minute later. You get a seer smashed on six slugs of scotch, and she spills all sorts of secret stuff. I mean, who'd have thought that Sirius Black and Peter Pettigrew were secretly the same person? Not me, said the vendor. They've even got a picture of the two of them together, so we know who it is that's secretly the same person. Yep, pretty clever disguise, innit? And I'm secretly 65 years old. You don't look half that. And I'm betrothed to Hermione Granger and Bellatrix Black and Luna Lovegood and, oh yes, Draco Malfoy too. Going to be one interesting wedding. Harry looked up from the newspaper and said in a pleasant voice, You know, I heard at first that Luna Lovegood was insane, and I wondered if she really was or if she was just making stuff up and giggling to herself the whole time. Then when I read my second Quibbler headline, I decided that she couldn't be insane. I mean... It can't be easy to make the stuff up. You couldn't do it by accident. And now do you know what I think? I think she must be mad after all. When ordinary people try to make stuff up, it doesn't come out like this. Something's got to go really wrong with the inside of your head before this is what comes out when you start making stuff up. The vendor stared at Harry. Seriously, who reads this stuff? You, said the vendor. Harry wandered off to read his newspaper. He didn't sit at the same nearby table he'd sat down at with Draco, the first time he'd prepared to board this train. That seemed like tempting history to repeat itself. It wasn't just that his first week at Hogwarts had been, judging by the quibbler, 54 years long. It was that, in Harry's humble opinion, his life did not need any new threads of complexity. So Harry found a small iron chair somewhere else, distant from the main crowd and the occasional muffled cracks of parents apparating in with their children, and sat down and read the quibbler to see if it contained any suppressed news. And besides the obvious craziness, heaven help them all if any of that was real, there was a good deal of snide romantic gossip, but nothing that would really be all that important if it was true. Harry was just reading about the ministry's proposed marriage law to ban all marriages when... Harry Potter, said a silken voice that sent a shock of adrenaline jolting through Harry's blood. Harry looked up. Lucius Malfoy, Harry said, his voice weary. Next time, he was going to do the smart thing and wait outside in the muggle part of King's Cross until 10.55 a.m. Lucius inclined his head courteously, sending his long white hair drifting over his shoulders. The man was still carrying that same cane, lacquered in black with a silver snake's head for its handle, and something about his grip silently said, This is a weapon of deadly power. Not, I am feeble and leaning on this. His face was expressionless. Two men flanked him, their eyes continuously scanning, their wands already gripped low in their hands. The two of them moved like a single organism with four legs and four arms, 
the senior Crab and Goyle, and Harry thought he could guess which was which, but then it didn't really matter. They were merely Lucius's appendages, as certain as if they'd been the two rightmost toes on his left foot. I apologize for disturbing you, Mr. Potter, but you have answered none of my owls, and this, I thought, might be my only opportunity to meet you. I have received none of your owls, Harry said calmly. Dumbledore intercepted them, I presume, but I would not have answered them if I had, except through Draco. For me to deal with you directly, without Draco's knowledge, would trespass on our friendship. Please go away. Please go away. Is that your pose, then? Well, I shall play along a little. What was your purpose in maneuvering your good friend, my son, into a public alliance with that girl? Oh, that's obvious, right? Draco's working with Granger will make him realize that Muggleborns are human after all. Blah, ha, ha. A thin trace of a smile moved over Lucius's lips. Yes, that does sound like one of Dumbledore's plans, which it is not. Indeed, it is part of my game with Draco and no work of Dumbledore's, and that is all I will say. Let us dispense with games said the senior Malfoy, the grey eyes suddenly hardening. If my suspicions are true, you would hardly do Dumbledore's bidding in any case, Mr. Potter. There was a slight pause. So you know, Harry said, his voice cold. Tell me, at which point exactly did you realize? When I read your response to Professor Quirrell's little speech, said the white-haired man and chuckled grimly. I was puzzled at first, for it seemed not in your own interest. It took me days to understand whose interest was being served, and then it all finally became clear. And it is also obvious that you are weak, in some ways, if not others. Very clever of you, said Harry, still cold. But perhaps you mistake my interests. Perhaps I do. A hint of steel came into the silken voice. Indeed, that is precisely what I fear. You are playing strange games with my son, to a purpose I cannot guess. That is not a friendly act, and you cannot but expect me to be concerned. Lucius was leaning upon his cane with both hands now, and both those hands white and his bodyguards had suddenly tensed. Some instinct within Harry claimed that it would be a very bad idea to show his fear, to let Lucius see that he could be intimidated. They were in a public train station anyway. I find it interesting, Harry said, putting steel into his own voice, that you think I could benefit from doing Draco harm. But it is irrelevant, Lucius. He is my friend, and I do not betray my friends. What? whispered Lucius. His face showed sheer shock. Then, Company, said one of the minions, and Harry thought, from the voice, that it must be the senior crab. Lucius straightened and turned, then let out a hiss of disapproval. Neville was approaching, looking scared but determined, in tow behind a tall woman who didn't look scared at all. Madam Longbottom, Lucius said icily. Mr. Malfoy, returned the woman with equal ice. Are you being an annoyance to our Harry Potter? The bark of laughter that came from Lucia seemed strangely bitter. Oh, I rather think not. Come to protect him from me, have you? 
The white-haired head shifted toward Neville. And this would be Mr. Potter's loyal lieutenant, the last scion of Longbottom. Neville, self-styled of chaos. How strangely does the world turn. Sometimes I think it must all be mad. Harry had no idea what to say to that, and Neville looked confused and frightened. I doubt it is the world that is mad, said Madame Longbottom. Her voice took on a gloating tone. You seem in a poor mood, Mr. Malfoy. Did the speech of our dear Professor Quirrell cost you a few allies? It was a clever enough slander of my abilities, though only effective upon the fools who believed that I was truly a Death Eater. What? blurted Neville. I was under the imperious young men. The Dark Lord could hardly have begun recruiting among pure-blood families without the support of House Malfoy. I demurred, and he simply made sure of me. His own Death Eaters did not know it until afterward, hence the false mark I bear, though since I did not truly consent it does not bind me. Some of the Death Eaters still believe I was foremost among their number, and for the peace of this nation I let them believe it, to keep them controlled. But I was not such a fool as to support that ill-fated adventurer of my own choice. Ignore him, Madame Longbottom said, the instruction addressed to Harry as well as Neville. He must spend the rest of his life pretending, for fear of your testimony under Veritasurum, said with malicious satisfaction. Lucius turned his back on her dismissively and faced Harry again. Will you request this Harridan to depart, Mr. Potter? I think not. I prefer to deal with the part of House Malfoy that's my own age. There was a long pause then. The grey eyes searched him. Of course. I do feel the fool now. This whole time you were just pretending to have no idea what we were talking about. Harry met the gaze and said nothing. Lucius raised his cane a few centimeters and struck it hard on the ground. The world vanished in a pale haze. All sounds went quiet. There was nothing in the universe but Harry and Lucius Malfoy and the snake-headed cane. My son is my heart, the last worthwhile thing I have left in this world, and this I say to you in a spirit of friendship. If he were to come to harm, I would give my life over to vengeance. But so long as my son does not come to harm, I wish you the best of luck in your endeavors. And as you have asked nothing more of me, I will ask nothing more of you. Then the pale haze vanished, showing an outraged Madame Longbottom being blocked from moving forward by the senior crab, her wand in her hand now. How dare you! Lucius's dark robe swirled around him and his white hair as he turned to the senior Goyle. We return to Malfoy Manor. Then there were three pops of apparition, and they were gone. A silence followed. Dear heavens, what was that about? Harry shrugged helplessly. Then he looked at Neville. There was sweat on Neville's forehead. Thank you very much, Neville. Your help was greatly appreciated, Neville. And now, Neville, I think you should sit down. Yes, General, said Neville, and instead of coming over to one of the other chairs near Harry, he semi-collapsed into a sitting position on the pavement. You have wrought many changes in my grandson. I approve of some, but not others. 
Send me a list of which is which. I'll see what I can do. Neville groaned, but said nothing. Madame Longbottom gave a chuckle. I shall, young man. Thank you. Her voice lowered. Mr. Potter, the speech given by Professor Quirrell is something our nation has long needed to hear. I cannot say as much of your comment on it. I'll take your opinion under advisement. I dearly hope that you do, said Madame Longbottom and turned back to her grandson. Do I still need to? It's okay for you to go, Grandma. I'll be fine on my own, this time. Now that I approve of, she said, and popped and vanished like a soap bubble. The two boys sat there quietly for a moment. Neville spoke first, his voice weary. You're going to try to fix all the changes she approves of, right? Not all of them, Harry said innocently. I just want to make sure I'm not corrupting you. Draco looked very worried. His head kept darting around, despite the fact that he had insisted on them going down into Harry's trunk and using a true quieting charm and not just the sound-blurring barrier. What did you say to father? blurted Draco the moment the quieting charm went up and the sounds of platform nine and three quarters vanished. I... look, can you tell me what he said to you before he dropped you off? said Harry. That I should tell him right away if you seem to be threatening me, said Draco. That I should tell him right away if there was anything I was doing that could pose a threat to you. Father thinks you're dangerous, Harry. Whatever you said to him today, it scared him. It's not a good idea to scare father. Oh, hell. What did you talk about? demanded Draco. Harry leaned back wearily in the small folding chair that sat at the bottom of his trunk's cavern. You know, Draco, just as the fundamental question of rationality is, what do I think I know and how do I think I know it, there is also a cardinal sin, a way of thinking that's the opposite of that. Like the ancient Greek philosophers, they had no clue what was going on, so they'd go around saying things like, all is water, or all is fire. And they never ask themselves, wait a minute, even if everything is water, how could I possibly know that? They didn't ask themselves if they had evidence which discriminated that possibility from all the other possibilities you could imagine. Evidence they'd be very unlikely to encounter if that theory wasn't true. Harry, Draco said, his voice strained. What did you talk about with father? I don't know, actually, so it's very important that I not just make stuff up. Harry had never heard Draco shriek in horror in quite that high a pitch before. End chapter 38 Thank you to the following people. Augusta Longbottom by Sabrina Seaver Lucius Malfoy, voiced by Martek Tex Neville by Adam Hartel Mr. Durian by Bram Bakker. Quibbler Headlines by Phil Folio. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. If you would like to learn more about the art of rationality, please visit lesswrong.com, an online community of aspiring rationalists founded by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. 
The music used is Catch That Goblin by Skaven. Thank you for listening, and come back next week for Chapter 39, Pretending to be Wise, Part 1. Part 1.